Best Book Bits podcast brings you Karen and David, uh, authors of the book Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro-Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. David and Karen, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Delighted to be with you. No problem. Now, um, this is uh, very unusual to have uh, two people on the one podcast, but tell us a little bit about yourself, how the book came about, and uh, are you two co-authors or are you two uh, partners? What's their story? <laughs> yes and yes. Uh, we are we are married. We're co-authors, uh, business partners. Uh, we run a company called Let's Grow Leaders, and uh, we have been doing that for about nine years. Uh, prior to that, uh, David and I were both executives, so everything that we do is really grounded in very practical experience. I was at Verizon for 20 years, uh, two decades, uh, HR First decade HR, leadership development, OD. Uh, then the second decade was a variety of field assignments, which you hear about in the book, a 2,200 person sales team and 10,000 person customer service organization. David uh, has led a variety of human services executive roles. So, you know, we the book came about uh, because we were working with clients all over the world and we were noticing a consistent pattern uh, we would go in and work at the very senior levels of organizations and we would hear things like, gosh, why am I the only one who discovers these best practices? Why are my middle managers not speaking up? You know, what is going on? I really want people's ideas. And then we would be working at the front line of the very same organizations and we would hear, oh, nobody really wants my ideas. Last time I spoke up, I got in trouble. Why bother? We thought, huh. Are you working for the same company? So uh, we set out to partner with the University of North Colorado Social Research Lab on extensive research study. You know, what was interesting is uh, as and what came of the research was all of the findings in the book and things that we'll talk about, I'm sure. The other impetus that led to the book was as we were looking, this was before the pandemic happened, but we were looking ahead at the world of work and leadership and and how organizations are structured and function. And one of the trends that you see is automation and the, the, in any business, in any industry, anything that can be routine and automated and driven to a lower level where machines can do it better than people, that's happening. And if it hasn't happened, it's going to happen. And so looking ahead, looking forward, the human element of creativity and problem solving and innovation, those are the competitive advantages that businesses of the future are going to have and be able to tap into. And so when we looked at where the world is going and what leaders and businesses are going to need, and then we did the research to find out what keeps that from happening. When people aren't speaking up, why aren't they speaking up? Uh, when they would speak up, but aren't, what would they be contributing? How would they be benefiting the business? And, uh, and incidentally, it's not, you know, oh, hey, my idea is I want kombucha in the break room. It's real meaningful ideas that would improve the uh, product, service, quality, efficiency, customer experience, employee experience, or processes. So uh, all of that combined to produce courageous cultures. Yeah, thank you for that uh, little sum up. I read the book uh, cover to cover, an amazing book. And it's quite fascinating that within different companies, yes, you've got different organizational charts and different levels, but there's different conversations going on at different, different levels. And as you stated in the book, and what I sort of summed it up was, 
There's secret conversations happening that need to be spoken about out loud. And those ideas that come from the bottom can serve the whole organization and just that openness of communication. So um, my first question is, and one of you people can answer it, what is a courageous culture or what makes a courageous culture? Yeah, our favorite definition of culture comes from Seth Godin, the marketing guru, who says, culture is simply people like us do things like this. So in a courageous culture, people like us speak up. Uh, leaders are proactively going out and asking for people's ideas. The default is to contribute. And so that's really what we're going for here when we talk about courageous cultures. And it's the opposite of safe silence, which prevails in so many different organizations and teams. So let's move from that to consistent contribution. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for uh, expanding on that. Now, one of my favorite investors of all time, his name's Ray Dalio, and I think he runs the company Bridgewater Associates. You talk about it in the book. Can you uh, expand on uh, their culture, one of the world's most successful hedge funds with radical commitments to transparency, open-mindedness, and where speaking up with criticism isn't just allowed, it's expected. Can you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, And one of the examples that we share in the book, so you just described the culture very well. But as a leader, if you're trying to create a courageous culture, and, and by the way, Bridgewater has what we would consider a very extreme version of that with that level of directness that works in their culture. You got to know what people like us do. But one of the leadership principles behind that is you have got to model it. You've got to own it and people have to be able to see it. And how you respond to the things that you hear, the ideas that are contributed, the criticisms or feedback you receive is critical. And so in the book, we talk about uh, how Ray received some feedback one time uh, from one of his uh, team members who said, you know, Ray, you were not prepared for that meeting. You just, you just weren't there, man. <laughs> and very direct and, and harsh, but he celebrated it. In fact, it was so valuable that he published it. He said, this is what I'm talking about. A, you're right. I wasn't full. I was not as effective as I could have been in that situation. And B, this is what we need if we're going to improve. So I'm going to improve. And I, he got some help to, to improve uh, and then celebrated that form of sharing. And so the, the thing that we can all take away from that, you may not be in a culture that has that level of, of radical directness, but you're in a culture where if you want the best ideas from every person, you got to respond well to what you're hearing. We call it respond with regard, gratitude, information, and an invitation. I can thank the person for sharing and contributing and trying to help us be better. I can add information that's going to help them to know what to do with that idea, how to improve the idea, or, um, or why we can't use the idea if that's the case. And then I can do an invitation to ask them to continue thinking, continue contributing, and when we do that, we build momentum and we build a pipeline of ideas, suggestions, and solutions to problems. Yeah, thank you. Is there anything to add, uh, Karen, on your side on that? Yeah, I think you. I think you explained that really well. Yeah, some of the notes I got from that was, um, you know, improvement involves direct feedback, and without that feedback, we're not going to get better. And companies, as you know, cultures um, tend to sort of become a bit stale and wither if the, the company's not communicating. And I like what you said regarding it's not about the feedback directly, it's how they respond to the feedback and having that culture of openness where you're allowed, you're, you're, you're given space 
to not only give feedback, but actually get a response back from that feedback in a sort of human to human way instead of the old way as well. Um, you give great examples in the books by different companies like Trader Joe's, uh, Nestle. Uh, tell us some examples of companies that practice this uh, courageous culture. Uh, I will tell you, we are in working with Nestle Switzerland at a pretty deep level at this moment, and they're really working to uh, take their culture up, even their great culture, make it even stronger by building what they're calling a care and dare culture, which I love that because it's a it's the balance of you need empathy, you need connection, you need human centered, and you want people taking appropriate risks and, and speaking up and sharing their ideas. And what I love about what Nestle is doing, in addition to doing work, leadership development work around culture at the C-level, at the senior vice president level, the level below that they are also taking a look at all of the building and infrastructure for courage elements. So one of the opportunities we had just uh, earlier this week had an opportunity to, let's look at the way they're asking their interview questions. Are they, are the, are the way they're interviewing going to attract the right people and help them select the people who will thrive and contribute to a culture like this? And so I, I think the work that they're doing there is deep, and it's committed. And what you're seeing there is people really taking it seriously and navigating their own narratives and uh, finding ways to um, be very deliberate in asking people uh, for, uh, for their ideas. Yeah, I think what I got from that is, yeah, empathy, it's not just a word people throw around these days. It's an, it's an implementation, especially from the highest companies up there. Some of the thoughts I had was, um, you know, it doesn't cost companies. It actually adds and multiplies to their bottom line too through sort of not just keeping employees and retaining them. But if you're a happy employee you, and you're, let's say, on the, the customer service front line, you're not only going to get better service, but you're also going to create that better team environment as well. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's definitely a plus uh, to make sure, you know, how we're going. Now, um, a strange question. Um, tell me what is in the book, you talk about the power of courageous culture in a gig economy and an AI universe. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So going back to, as I said, some of the, the forward things that we were looking at and trends in the in the world. Uh, so I mentioned automation. Well, artificial intelligence is another one and that feeds directly into the automation. Again, anything computers can do, they're going to do. That's not a if, it's a when. And then the final element is the gig economy, which you know, even through the pandemic, we continue to see ramping up. And that is you know, the, the, the notion that there are, everybody is kind of their own business and doing freelance contracts and there's always another opportunity just to click away. And so in the great resignation and, you know, in the U.S., 40 percent of folks and we've seen different numbers like that from around the world as people have had this uh, global staring contest with mortality and are reevaluating what they're doing. Well, all of those factors, the gig economy, the, the great resignation, the great transitions, however, whatever word you want to use. Uh, the role of computers and technology, all of that, again, creates that environment where the human element becomes the deciding factor. Everything else is table stakes. If we're getting a minimal level of technological efficiency, that's just what allows us to play the game with our competitors. What's going to distinguish us? What's going to take us to that next level? 
is the human ingenuity, creativity, empathy, all of those elements. And so leaders who are effective at building a culture that brings those things out from every person in their organization are the one, those are the companies and the businesses of tomorrow. Yeah, and also with that much movement of people uh, in and out of organizations, if you are not tapping into your new hires experiences and learning what your competitors are doing, you are missing an opportunity for innovation. You know, so uh, one of the things we talk about in the Building Infrastructure for Courage chapter is, you know, how do you, uh, as soon as people come in the door, be crystal clear that you really do want their ideas. And then once they've been there not too long, say, how, how is the company that you came from doing this better than us? Whatever this is, wherever you need a great idea. Uh, because a new hire is probably going to be more reluctant, not yet have the psychological safety to speak up unless you are very deliberate about that. And all of that, yeah. when we're talking about yeah. the movement of people, it helps calm down that movement a little bit. Some turnover always healthy, but if, if it's higher than we want, how can we make a culture that's sticky? Well, everybody feels valued and is contributing. It's a very um, it's a very unique situation when someone new comes into a new organization in the first, from my experience in the, the workforce for the last 20 years, uh, someone comes into a new organization and they, for the first couple of weeks, they're talking about the old organization, why they're getting adjusted to this new organization. And we don't necessarily want their fit. We don't want to necessarily hear about their other company and how they do things because we're in that transition of ingraining them into our new system. And the problem is we there should be a balance of, okay, this is our system, that was your system, tell me things that maybe that you did that we don't do, what you did better, what you think works. Like there's no feedback loop and that that feedback loop is what what's going to make things better. Um, and a great little stat you wrote in the book as well in regards to the um, millennials. So you wrote 43% of college students would rather be an entrepreneur than have a job when they graduate. That's yeah. crazy. So, and so if that is, that's is, and if yeah. that is the mindset of people coming in, you know, it were if if you have people who are saying, "I probably am going to be an entrepreneur someday," but for now, I'm going to go do this. How do you tap into that entrepreneurial spirit um, so that they can see that they can become an entrepreneur and still uh, have that those needs that are very inherent in them met? Yep. Yeah. And uh, in the book, you talk about sort of courageous cultures when there's no room for failure. Talk a little bit about sort of micro innovations and um, or an advocate for customers and what that means. Sure. You know, the, we use the word micro innovation in the title. What we're talking about there is that the majority of innovation is not blue ocean, new strategy, uh, a whole new thing that's never been seen or invented before. Most innovation is micro innovation. It's the day to day improvements and enhancements improving a process, improving an efficiency, finding a way to solve a problem and better serve our customer. Uh, we talk about uh, what in the US are known as honey crisp apples. Uh, you know, it revolutionized the apple market, but it's not a new fruit. It's an apple, it's just a better apple. And so if we can find those, those compound, one of those a day or one of those a week are transformational if we're on the lookout for them. And so when we talk about micro innovations, that's what we're talking about there. And then on the customer advocacy side, you know, that is having everybody thinking about who is our end user, who is our customer, whether that's an internal customer, or if we're in a support function, if it's our external customer, whoever's purchasing our product or service, but we're all thinking and raising our hand on behalf of those people. And Got some cool stories about ways to do that. Yeah, we also had a uh, what we were working with an a, stru a structural engineering company, and the the CEO said, 
risk is for weekends. He's like, I don't want my people innovating. I want them following the process. I've got to get this right. You know, and of course, there were still processes that needed to be streamlined. There, ne there were policies that needed to be improved. There was the way they were interfacing with the customer that had opportunity. So, you know, I think you can get locked in if you think, I really don't want innovation. But the key is, where do you need innovation? Being clear, like the, we talk about hard lines, guidelines, and your lines. And it went, that's, these are the things that are hard lines. You know, we have to get this right. It has to be exactly like this. But for these categories of topics, here's areas where we do really want your ideas or we do have some discretion of showing up because people want to bring their ideas to work and giving them opportunities and um, making sure that they feel like their ideas are welcome really matters. And, you know, and it, even if that end product has to be a certain way, there's almost always the possibility of improving the process that leads to that end product in a way that gets there faster, better, cheaper, better experience, what have you. Yeah, that's right. And I like how you said that that boss said risk is for weekend in that engineering firm because the the risk, I believe, was like 0.0002% of failure that would just ruin. But what you're talking about, it wasn't the actual that particular job or that particular industry, it was as a whole. So thank you for expanding on that. Uh, some of the things I got from the book as well, like what what counts as courage? And I'll just read a, a little a passage if you don't mind. So with your quantitative research that you've done all around the world, basically some of the answers that were remarkably consistent and came back was, I stood up to my boss. I managed out of a, a poor performer. Um, I shared truthful information no one wanted to hear. I defended a co-worker against a bully. I argued an unpopular point of view. I walked away from a bad situation. I advocated for my career. I fired a customer. I liked that one. I went back to school and last, I took a new position. There's some examples of uh, courage, but have I missed out any of there or... Yeah, that, you know, it was interesting as we were doing the, you know, we did the formal research for the book uh, with the University of North Colorado. And then we also were doing a whole bunch of qualitative research, including when we would be speaking at conferences, we would ask this question. And, you know, what is the most courageous act you've done? And we would have people write down on index cards. And then we had just stacks and stacks and stacks of these cards. And then we would sort them into piles. And what you see there are the one, the themes that kept coming up again and again and again. So those are the moments that people consider courageous. The interesting thing about that is that a lot of times people say, you know, when I did the thing, whatever that courageous moment is, it didn't feel particularly courageous at the time. It just felt like something I had to do. And what's uh, fascinating is that since the book came out, we have continued in workshops and courses and as we talk to people to ask them that question. And the answers continue to fall into those same categories, that those are meaningful areas of courage that everyone has uh, and can access. And the, the, the reason that we ask that question is we want you to build on that for the acts of courage that the future will require. Because there's a paradox when you get into courageous cultures is that if you've got a culture where people like us raise our hand, we speak up, it's what we do. Well, it doesn't actually take as much courage every day to do that. But leaders need to go first. And so tapping into our own moments of courage to be able to do that is key. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Amy Evanson, who is really considered the pioneer of psychological safety uh, from Harvard, she wrote the forward to the book and she, she talks about how people are more likely, we're hardwired 
to remember a negative experience than a positive experience. And that applies to speaking up and courage and psychological safety too. And why that is so important is that even if you are the most human-centered leader, proactively encouraging people to share their ideas, it is statistically likely that somebody has had a negative experience in the past that they're holding on to that is creating some fear that you've got a headwind you're fighting against there. Yeah, it's another word for vulnerability and uh, being vulnerable means to say something not knowing what the answer may be. So they're having that space. So the vulnerability is a, a form of fear, but yeah, a fear of the unknown. So we need to walk into that. Um, just to circle back on some of the things you said when people responded with their courageous acts, actions, it wasn't just how the act, you know, that it maybe feel like it in the moment, but some of the things you wrote in the book of what they felt afterwards was fantastic, uh, uh, relieved, strong, proud, or stupid that I waited so long. And then from my own experience, if you ask for a raise, a raise from your boss or you ask for a promotion or you ask for more work and how you can add more value, these things that you're proud of to actually ask for after the fact as well. So, yeah, I can definitely agree that uh, sometimes it's not the courageous act in itself. It's how you feel after you've done the courageous act as well. Um, I want to talk and move on to sort of small acts of courage that set the foundation for courageous cultures. Uh, so where do you start? What, what is the small C courageous acts that people can start with that are listening? Well, there's a couple places. So first is if you have what we call courage crushers, if you have any of the toxic courage crushers in your culture, is to make a decision, a resolution as a leader that you are not going to tolerate those and that you're, like, you're going to have a zero tolerance policy for any of that. Because if it takes courage for people just to show up and do their work in the face of injustice or discrimination or harassment or any of that kind of thing, uh, there's no way you're going to get what we're talking about. So that's step one is to deal with those things and have the courage as a leader to say, no, we're not doing that. And if you have a bully in the workplace, it doesn't matter how productive they are. You have to address that and ask them to, to remedy their behavior or they got to go and to have those conversations. That's step one. Yeah. And then small acts of courage. This is, you know, sometimes people, one of the things people will often say, that's great, but it will never work here because we don't actually have a courageous culture. So I am worried about that. And so, you know, we say, you know, you don't have to go out and declare, let you know, send your CEO a copy of the book and say, let's build a courageous culture. Just show up, tell your team you're serious about wanting ideas and asking even a small courageous question, which is a question that is specific, it's humble and assumes that improvement is possible and that you're actually listening to. So, you, you know, hey, you know what? We really need some ideas on how we can be productive while people are still working from home. Okay. Uh, what is one way that you think we could be more productive? Okay. So that, that doesn't feel overwhelming to anyone to ask that question. And it's, and you're likely to tap into good ideas there. Another example would be if you're a leader kicking off a project or an initiative, you know, to, to ask your team a courageous question like, you know, okay, team, we're getting ready to do this. What's one problem or one obstacle that if we don't solve it, it has, there's a great likelihood it could tank or, or, or ruin this project. Yeah. You know, you're just asking for one and assuming that there are possibilities that you're going to hear about. And so 
that isn't a huge thing. But if you do that regularly and then respond with regard to what you hear, you will be building a culture of feedback and courage on your team. It's a really simple um, leadership is is one of those things, and um, one of the things that sticks in my head doing the book summary of Nelson Mandela. Uh, his father was a chief back in the day, and um, a lot of people have obviously spoken about this particular analogy. But he was a tribal chief, chief, and there was probably about uh, eleven lieutenants call him. And then what was the simplest thing he did? He would start the meeting and let everyone else speak around the circle. And the time it got to him as the twelfth person. Not only did he have an idea in his head, but that idea might have changed, but he heard 11 other people speak about what the goal, the mission, or the topic was. And then he had time to articulate what was said and to sum that up to the group. Whereas bad leadership is just telling people, this is how it's done, this is the mission, this is the goal, go out there and do it without getting any feedback. So it just comes back to good leadership and then going full circle of what you said with the barriers to courageous culture, uh, you talk about toxic leadership uh, in the book. Um, Hopefully that made sense what I said, but can you expand a little bit about toxic leadership and how from an employee level we can slowly change that as well? Yeah, it was really tragic how many examples we heard of what what I would call toxic leadership. And, you know, the big three are shame, blame and intimidation. And so, you know, this is the CEO or, you know, puts up all the results up on, you know, and then asks, passes the microphone around the, you know, the hotel conference to have people explain why their results are so bad in front of all their peers, right? It's not, it's not inappropriate to ask people to explain their results, but to do it in such a demeaning way creates fear that stifles innovation. Or it's the person who, um, executive who has amnesia about a decision that they made and blames it on somebody else and says, I, you know, why did you all do this? And they're all looking at this person saying, you did this. What do you, <laughs> you made that call. Another one that came out in the research was the number of people who were concerned, like if you were, if you were to not share an idea, what would keep you from sharing it? And the number one re- most common response was not getting credit for that idea. And so uh, leaders who are stealing credit for ideas that are not theirs, they're taking credit when it was somebody else's. Like, you know, those kinds of things just are so destructive. Yeah, you, you give uh, some great examples in the book as well. And then uh, jumping on to the next sort of topic um, that you talk about is navigate the narrative. So in the book, you talk sort of the next step to creating a courageous culture is navigate the narrative. Uh, we tell ourselves stories about what's happening, who we are, and what other people think about us. To navigate the narrative means that you pay attention to the stories that you tell yourself. Can you expand on that, The uh, navigating the narrative? Yeah. So, you know, this whole concept of people are more likely to hold on to a negative experience than a positive experience. It happens for us too, for leaders too. And so leaders go first. So if you were working to create a courageous culture, the first thing you really want to do is get comfortable with how comfortable are you with speaking up? Because if you're going out to your team and saying, you know, I really do want your ideas. Uh, if you've got, see me doing something that you disagree with, please challenge me. But they're watching your behavior and you're not doing that with your manager or you're not standing up to a peer who's making a poor choice. That's what they're going to pay attention to. And the reason that you're doing that, back to what you said, Michael, is that you're telling yourself a story. If I were to speak up, uh, there's going to be, it's going to have career ruining consequences. If I 
confront this employee about their poor behavior. I'm going to lose their production and it's going to ruin everything. Right. We tell ourselves stories. Well, those stories aren't always accurate. They're not always true. And so to find the true stories, to find the stories of where we have had those moments of courage to ground ourselves in those and then try some different stories. Let me use the tools to speak up and actually confront my boss about, you know, where I know I saw, I heard you want to do this. And if this is really the goal, I'm not seeing the connection. Can you help me understand? Yeah. In our Courageous Cultures workshops, one of the things that we have also been doing is helping people connect to their bigger narrative, the bigger reason that they are doing what they do, because that helps with courage, too. So, you know, why do you do what you do? We do a movie trailer exercise where people create a movie trailer about their role or their team's role. But it is amazing. In like 10 minutes, people can build these really creative stories about why they do what they do. And by connecting people back to the impact that they're having in the bigger world. So if they have to take a risk, they're making that risk for that bigger good. And that helps uh, also foster courage. Talk to me a little bit about the workshops. Do you, uh, do you get all the levels of people in the in the company in or how, how does it sort of work and how does, how does it run? Is it a half day thing, a day thing, a two day thing, a weekend? What's uh... We do this in a variety of ways. Um, One of our most popular is space learning over time, where we do, we're working with companies live online over a six month period. And we take them through and uh, starting with navigating the narrative and then creating clarity and cultivating curiosity and responding with regard, and then having them apply the very practical tools and techniques to come up with ideas. So that's one way. Uh, yeah. We also have this, uh, if you've got a half a day, one of our favorite ways to do this is uh, called a fish bowl. So think shark tank competition, only friendlier. And this is where we quickly ground uh, people in, you can do this with a large group. So say you have 200 people that you want to get really get their ideas. You, we ground them quickly into our only ugly process and our idea methodology. And then from there, they compete on teams to come up with their best idea using those tools for key strategic areas, which you've outlined. And then they compete with one another and the sharks are the executives, right? And they are listening uh, to these ideas and they're providing feedback and they're responding with regard real time. Uh, we just completed a fishbowl uh, with uh, one of our long-term clients who had been through some of the other leadership development work and they had us do this at a big live online company offsite. We had 20 fantastic ideas that came out of that. So it wasn't just the winning ideas that were able to be used and integrated. And what the president did was he took those ideas and he mapped them to their long-term strategic plan and was saying, hey, we can use a bit of this one here and a little bit of that one there. And then he responded back to the organization saying, this is how we're using their ideas. The, the energy coming out of that session was palpable, right? And people were just, they loved it. And you you got all of that great thinking, critical thinking. So you're teaching your people critical thinking, but you're also having them apply to, to real business challenges. 
have you um is that a an international methodology that you've copyrighted because i would love to teach that in australia to companies that fish half half a day fishbowl thing i'm a massive fan of shark tank the uh obviously the tv show we've got it down under as well uh but that that sounds great i could just feel the energy of of that room with the ideas and the energy flowing as well so congratulations yeah. that is that hey, your ip or is that someone else's ip we, we did create it but it, okay. and we talk about it in the book but it's funny because we also created the, like their zoom backdrops and then we yep. made it so there were little sharks going around and like so everybody looked like they were under the water while we were doing it and that was pretty fun too that's actually that's that's legendary do you want to add <laughs> to that do you want to add on to that david uh, uh fishbowl? Well, sound, the sound effects all, all <laughs> kinds of things oh yeah we had really all kinds of fun ways to bling that out and create an experience for people Cool. We'll talk. We'll talk off the air. You can teach me this, and I can uh, get it done for companies down under. Um, yeah, that's that's awesome. Because what happens is you need that space, that environment, that safe space for people to talk. And I like the idea how you put the executives um, in, as sharks. Obviously, you stroke their ego so you keep them happy, okay? And then you have all the fish in the pond talking about, okay, this is what we can do. So yeah, I can just picture that. Um, yeah, great stuff. And by the way, the, the value there is on all sides because those, those senior leaders are also practicing sharing feedback as they hear ideas. We coach them and, okay, now here's how you respond with regard and here's how you do that to get an even better idea or enhance this idea. Or And so everybody wins all the way around. Every company should not only do this, but there should be these little mini ones as well where maybe you know, an hour or two a quarter where, you know, the executives get together and sit in the thrones or the chairs and then they you basically can can do that just to create keep that culture going as well. And I like how you said, and I took some notes, space learning over time. That's just like space repetition with uh, the memory principles as well because not only give people information, like you can read a book and then forget 98% of it, if you don't apply the principles or knowledge in the book, well, it, it what's there's no help in that. So it's about that space time repetition. Uh, so congrats, well done. Um, let's continue with the book. You talk about sort of the courageous culture cycle, and you touch on the book in regards to clarity and curiosity um, in a little loop. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So we talk about a, the elegant dance between clarity and curiosity because ultimately innovation uh, and creativity also require clarity. And there's a couple forms of clarity. First, you need to have really good clarity about where you're going. What are the strategic objectives that you're you're pursuing and that everyone is aligned towards? What are the behaviors that contribute to those? So you want to have that level of kind of core functional clarity, which is very familiar in, in management traditionally. Then you've got clarity around where do we most need a great idea? So as Karen mentioned earlier, am I am I aware as a leader of what areas of the business I would really like to get people thinking and parallel processing? Do we need a great idea for to retain customers? Do we need a great idea to improve our, our, our employee retention? Uh, do we need a, an idea to reduce costs or increase price? Whatever it is, wherever it is that we need an idea or we have this launch coming up, we need some creative ways to do something different. If we can get super clear about that great idea, and what, where that is, now we're set up to move in the dance over to the curiosity side of things. So clarity about where we're going, how we get there, and where we need great ideas are the foundation for then moving over to curiosity. And then we do the, all of the things that we do to ask those courageous questions. And we have a number of different tools in the books, uh, in the book about different ways to surface ideas, solutions, and, and those micro innovations. And as we choose those, 
And as we figure out what we're going to do, then we've got to go back to the clarity side. And as they get implemented, as they get rolled out, here's what we're doing. Here's how this looks in different contexts. We call that practice the principle. And so there's this, this dance back and forth between clarity and curiosity. Anything you want to add on that, uh, Karen? Thank you for yes, explaining that. Yes, we day. say start where you aren't. So, you know, if you are in a high clarity culture, very buttoned up, and this is the way we're going to do this, and everybody, you've got your systems and processes nailed, you probably should start with curiosity and and, and showing up curious, are, you know, what? how is this working? Is there another way to do this? Go on a curiosity tour, find out what's really happening. And if you are in a, you know, maybe a fast-growing venture-backed, uh, company that, and we're working with a lot of these right now, you know, they're, they're just growing so fast and the world is changing so rapidly and they're pivoting, pivoting, pivoting. They probably need clarity. And, and with those or organizations and our clients, we're actually starting more with, let's get focused on your strategic priorities. Let's do a five by five communication strategy around it, making sure everybody understands what's really going on. Let's look at the behaviors that we need to do on a daily basis to um, impact success. And we're honing in on that clarity piece for now to get them organized before really focusing on what they don't need is more ideas. Right now, they need to execute on some of the ideas that they have. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and in the book, you, you go through uh, Own the Ugly. What is Own the Ugly? And what are these four provocative questions people uh, can use to brainstorm with their team? Yeah, so Own the Ugly is the starting point of our what we call our idea incubator process. And we do use this in our fishbowl. And it's four strategic questions. So it's you, what are we underestimating? Meaning, what maybe have we not considered how big a deal this thing is? Uh, so, so you, what are we underestimating? G, what's got to go? What do we need to stop doing in order to be able to focus on the strategic priority or this thing that where we need a great idea? L, where are we losing? Meaning, where are we losing to the competition or where is our performance not where it used to be? And our favorite uh, is wh why, where are we missing the yes? Uh, where is there perhaps a completely different way to think about this, this problem or challenge or idea? And when you can say with regard to, and then you tell people where you need a great idea and invite them to ask those four strategic questions. And you can either do them all together or if you've got a large group, uh, I just did this the other day at an offsite, you all take the U's, you all take the G's, you take the L's, right? And then from there, you're getting a lot of ideas very, very quickly into the room that you could then begin to refine and, and hone in on. The power of those questions is that most teams don't take time to stop and ask that kind of that, those kinds of questions. We're busy executing. Uh, the, uh, we've got tasks that need to be done, and and we might ask ourselves one question about okay, how can we improve this? But to really look at you know, what are we underestimating? What are the capacities we're not thinking about? What are the the unintended consequences that we're not thinking? What are all of those different elements? We don't stop and have those conversations near frequently enough. And so in all of those four questions, opportunities to, and it's amazing when we, when we have those, facilitate those conversations with teams or companies, how quickly they get to really meaningful. And I'm talking in 20 minutes, they can get to some really meaningful analysis that leads to some great ideas. Yeah, oh, I think it's just getting them together to have the conversation and then, you know, not forcing it, but forcing them to say, hey, sit down, have a hard conversation and, and let's get it all on the table. And that that's the way forward that companies have to go through. Um, 
we could definitely run through more of the book, but we're probably going to run out of time. So I'm going to leave that to the readers to go out there, grab a copy, buy it online. Uh, but one last question about about the book. It's something selfish because I'm interested. I, I run masterminds, and in the book you talk about team masterminds. Can you touch a little bit about um, on team masterminds? Yeah. So do you want to do that or you want to? So uh, the uh, you know people have a mastermind mastermind groups. Right? Often that'll be people from across your industry. I certainly I have a mastermind that I do with other C level um, people who run training companies. Um, David has been involved in one in the keynote speaking space for years. You know, and so that is what people traditionally think of about as masterminds. But you can do that internally too where you can have your people come with a, a business challenge that they're really faced. And then they pitch the business challenge to their peers and they say, this is what I'm really struggling with right now. And then use mastermind methodology where then people each get a turn to then ask some provocative questions. Have you considered this? What about that? Tell me about this, you know, but just exploration questions, not yet giving advice. Then you respond to that and then people can then move into the solutions to help brainstorm these issues. And it is fun to see you because I don't think we have a lot of space for that often right. in organizations. And one of the techniques to, to help that succeed is as, as if you're the person who pitched your here's my situation, here's what I, I where I could use some some perspective or some potential answers is you get people's perspective as they ask their questions and then as they share their ideas. You're not responding to them right away. You're just taking it in. And there's an understanding. I may or may not use any one or all of what I hear. But in sitting and listening and giving people the chance, the opportunity to share, I'm getting a variety, kind of like you were describing earlier with uh, Mandela's father. You know, you're getting those perspectives that you might not get otherwise. The, the biggest thing going forward is space and silence, creating those safe spaces and giving people the silence, meaning active listening, for them to talk without you responding and let them just empty like empty themselves on what's in their heart and what's in their head and then learn to respond. Like, like as you said before, it's all about how you respond to that. And I think Masterminds has definitely changed my life quite a bit. And, and as you know, with Masterminds, we've, we've had some amazing three, four-hour conversations with people and from you, you leave that mastermind so energized because the stories that people shared and it answered, you know, questions in your head that you didn't even think about yet. So, yeah, I'm, I'm massive into masterminds. But, yeah, I think this is probably a good time to sort of wrap up the podcast. Can you talk a little bit about where people can sort of find out more about what you guys do, where they can buy the book, uh, where they can reach you on socials, where do you sort of hang out, uh, if anyone's listening that want to find out a little bit more? So our website is Let's Grow Leaders, and Let's you can find everything there. Uh, you can download the uh, first couple chapters, including uh, Dr. Amy Edmondson's Forward for free. Um, uh, if you go to the book tab on that, we write a blog regularly, and so we're always putting out new articles. Uh, David has a podcast called Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. And I run a vlog on LinkedIn called Asking for a Friend. So we're uh, very active. If you type in Let's Grow Leaders, we're at Let's Grow Leaders everywhere. Uh, our our um, homepage is certainly a good way to get to any of that. And then we love to connect with people on LinkedIn as well. And the book is available in any format you might like. The electronic, <laughs> hard copy, uh, the audio version, Karen and I narrate it. So 
Oh, Absolutely. you did? Yeah, cool. I was going to yeah. ask that, the audio version. What was that uh, experience like doing that? I'm halfway through doing my book in audio at the moment, um, which it, it's very hard. So how, what was that experience like, you two in the studio getting that it done? Was, I think it was fantastic. We had a, a, fan, a phenomenal producer uh, who's uh, outside of Washington, D.C., a little bit of a drive for us, and uh, uh, he did a fantastic job, and you know, it took a couple of days, but... Uh, we alternate kind chapters for the most part or alternate stories when there's a her story, my story. And uh, yeah, it was a great experience. Exhausting though. You, yeah, you're paying know, attention yeah. to every single word. <laughs> Awesome. I'll uh, check that out myself. But yeah, to my readers and listeners, go out there. Uh, yeah, Google Let's uh, Grow Leaders. Uh, fantastic uh, content you got up there at the moment. And yeah, the book is amazing. So go out there, uh, purchase the book. And who who's the book for, by the way? So who are the people who should be buying this book? You know, it is really written for so that it can be applicable at either a senior level of an organization, big or small. But we've also written it so that if you are leading a team, that you can apply, especially the first four steps of uh, navigating the narrative, creating clarity, cultivating curiosity, respond with regard. Anyone can do that as well. And then we've got some tools in there. If you are the one with the idea to pitch, that you can use that to feel more courage, uh, you know, speaking up as well. So target audience. So was orig originally thinking, you know, this is really important for leaders leading organizations, but uh, we are getting feedback that it is working so well at every level of the organization. Amazing. Uh, thank you for being uh, a great guest on the Best Book Bids podcast, and I'll pick your brain off air regarding the fishbowl thing. But yeah, Karen and David, thank you for all that you've done. And is there another book coming out in the future? Possibly, maybe? Someday. Someday. <laughs> cool. Perfect. Well, you take care. Have a great day. And uh, yeah, I'll speak to you offline. Okay. Thanks, Thanks. very much. All Take right, care. Bye.